Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can find me on Twitter at ExporterTax. This week on the podcast, I'm thrilled to have back Pat Brown. Pat is PwC's International Tax Policy Leader and the Washington National Tax Services Co-Leader. Pat, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. It's uh, good to be with you uh, virtually, I guess. Good to be with you again. Yeah, this is your first time post-quarantine. And before we dive into the, the subject matter, which is the OECD's recently released report on what I refer to as BEPS 2.0, Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, there are some congratulations in order, Pat. Um, you have now surpassed Rebecca Lee with the most visits to the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. You are officially one shy of the five-timers club. So my question for you, Pat, if I send you a five-timers jacket, will you wear it on the next appearance of the Cross-Border Tax Talks? Well, I have to answer that question, I guess, without seeing the jacket. So, uh, but you know, I'm a pretty courageous guy. Uh, so sure, I would definitely wear the five tigers jacket. And let me just say, it's an honor to even be included with people like Rebecca. So uh, I can't even imagine who's in the lofty climbs of the five timers club. But uh, if, if it comes to that, I will wear the jacket. <laughs> All right. So the, the follow up question then, well, what is your jacket size? Do you know that offhand? Uh, well, for, for a sport coat, I'm a, I'm a, yeah. I think I'm a 42 long. Uh, yeah, so that would be where you would, uh, where you would start. <laughs> All right. So everybody, th this is even more incentive for people to to actually watch the podcast uh, on on YouTube <laughs> as opposed to to just listening it. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm glad you're game. This is very exciting. So everybody, <laughs> stay tuned for stay tuned for that. Well, before we start thinking about the the your fifth appearance, let's let's get this fourth one underneath us because or behind us because this is a really interesting and dynamic topic. And you know, in anticipation of this, I was going back through my the myriad of documentation that I have in my hard drive on the OECD and kind of the base erosion and profit shifting initiative. And I was reminding myself that it was back in 2015 when really all of this started and particularly what we're now referring to as the BEPS 1.0 initiative. And there was a lot of focus on action one, which was the, which was digital. So, and, and then all of a sudden now we're at, we're at BEPS 2.0. So can you just talk a little bit about how we got to where, where we are from, you know, starting back in 2015, which is five years ago. I, I'll be honest, Pat, it seems like 15 years ago, not, not just five and, and everything that's happened, particularly with U.S. reform, but give us a little context about how we, where we started and, and how we ended up before we dive into the most recent report. Sure. So it, it, it is quite interesting and it is it has been quite a journey. And I, I share your sentiment, uh, Doug, that it's been five years, but it certainly seems like it's been longer. Um, you know, BEPS 1.0, I guess we'll call it BEPS 1.0, which was, of course, up until BEPS 2.0, we were just calling BEPS. Um, but BEPS 1.0 really, at least the way I think about it, it really, to me, emerged from the financial crisis, the global financial crisis. And we know that coming out of the global financial crisis, there was a lot of anger, animosity, frustration directed towards large corporations, 
a lot of sentiment that some of those large corporations had taken actions that had either precipitated or exacerbated the financial crisis and that those companies had been, you know, the uh, beneficiaries of bailouts from governments. Uh, and by the way, underlying all of this was this sentiment of, and they're not paying enough taxes and they're using all these tricks to avoid paying taxes and something needs to be done about this. And into that breach steps the OECD uh, with a really wide ranging series of initiatives. I mean, by far, I would say by far the most ambitious thing the OECD had ever undertaken in the tax space to really reframe the way international tax uh, was conducted or was carried out. And a lot of the focus in BEPS, to be sure, was on things like hybridity uh, or other types of planning initiatives that would, you know, the, the term that you heard people talk about was stateless income. The idea that you would have income in a jurisdiction that either through the use of hybrid instruments or hybrid entities wouldn't be subject to tax or would be subject to minimal tax. Uh, and planning initiatives like that or planning strategies like that were clearly a primary area of focus. Digital, as you mentioned, BEPS Action 1, was also an area of focus, but I would say it was definitely not the prime area of focus in BEPS. It was just this notion that new business models were putting pressure on some of the traditional uh, constructs that had formed the basis, the backbone of international tax for the first hundred years in much the same way that hybridity was putting these traditional constructs under pressure, so too were concepts in the modern economy of, you know, the term that you hear used is, you know, scale without mass, uh, where companies were able to do business in a jurisdiction without having a traditional permanent establishment in that jurisdiction. And the question as to whether or not that was appropriate in all circumstances and whether or not it should be reexamined. So that's 1.0, again, very, very wide ranging uh, am ambitious project from the OECD. Certainly many of us, as we watched the OECD unfold that, we thought to ourselves, boy, this is going to be a really difficult thing for the OECD to pull off. Um, I will tip my hat to the OECD. I think the success in terms of getting those initiatives across the finish line, producing the reports, and then broadly speaking, having them picked up in many, many OECD member countries, as well as countries outside the OECD, from that perspective, you'd have to say that the BEPS initiative was a roaring success. Uh, notably, of course, some of those uh, concepts even found their way into the 2017 U.S. tax reform uh, bill that you know uh, President Trump and the Republicans in Congress had enacted. So, so the concepts found their way into legislation in many countries, again, including the United States. From that perspective, you'd have to say BEPS was a success this concept of, okay, what about the digitalizing economy, in some sense represented unfinished work from BEPS and led ultimately to where we are today with BEPS 2.0. Yeah, and one of the things that, that's interesting, and I will remind our listeners with respect to BEPS 1.0 and particularly hybridity, is that you know the European Union had required all of its member states to uh, enact hybrid rules effective January 1st, 2020. And one of the things that I think is fascinating is we still have not seen each of those respective jurisdictions laws for for rules that are supposed to be effective at the beginning of 2020. And it, it is the end of October, 2020, almost November, and we're still waiting for uh, a number of, of those provisions, again, particularly in the EU. And you're right, we've seen it in, in other countries outside the EU. Uh, but 
you know, one thought that I have is that it doesn't feel like to me that BEPS 1.0 has even been fully delivered, let alone understanding what kind of the longer term consequences are from both an economic and a, and a tax policy perspective. And it's like we're already moving on to really a fundamental shift in how multinationals are are taxed. And I, it, it seems to me like I certainly see the position that BEPS 1.0 could be viewed as as a as a winner with that respect. But you know, moving into to BEPS 2.0, it it seems like we haven't even really even given chance for 1.0 to set in when we're already fundamentally thinking about changing the system again. Yeah, so it, it, I think it's a great point, Doug. The the ink is not yet dry uh, on on BEPS 1.0, and yet here we are, uh, you know, marching forward with with BEPS 2.0 and producing a great deal of documentation. And it is really, again, from the standpoint of what the OECD has done well, it's very clear that the OECD has drawn a lot of countries in and drawn a lot of attention into the issues. And you know, there's been a great deal of analysis around it and a great deal of focus and attention on it. But I do think, to your point, you know, there is a way in which the launch of BEPS 2.0 does reflect a departure from what the international community has really just agreed in BEPS 1.0, at least in a couple of important ways. And I think one of the important ways in which it reflects a departure is there is this sentiment that you see throughout many of the action items in, in BEPS 1.0 that the way to, to deal with the dissatisfaction that um, citizens around the world have been feeling about you know, corporate tax planning and corporate tax avoidance, that the way to deal with that was to go directly at the planning strategies. The planning strategies could be things like hybridity, which we've talked about. They could be things like locating you know, valuable intellectual property in a low tax jurisdiction where you don't have a lot of significant people functions. Um, and the, the, the approach of BEPS 1.0 really was to say, look, countries are free to set their own tax rates. Countries are free to have their own, their own tax system. But there are certain strategies that are being utilized that either exploit um, gaps or inconsistencies between these rules in the case of hybridity or that permit outcomes where there is really no meaningful substance in a jurisdiction, but there's still you know, significant profit there. And you know, the focus there really around these sort of corporate planning strategies and, again, the notion that companies are kind of slipping between the cracks here of the way the rules have been designed. BEPS 2.0, we're obviously going to get into the details of it as we go on, but that really does reflect a departure from that. It's almost as though there's this, you know, the international community and the OECD saying, yeah, yes, yes, we did all that. And that made perfect sense at the time we did it, but it wasn't good enough or turns out, you know, it didn't really work. It didn't achieve the outcome that we wanted. It is a fair question to ask as we sit here today, actually, have we given those action items a chance? And to your point, you know, many of the BEPS 1.0 action items have not yet been implemented uh, at the national level. So actually, how do we know? How do we know what is the extent of remaining, you know, profit shifting in a way that is um, unsatisfying or considered, you know, um, beyond what is acceptable uh, for, for companies to engage in. Uh, once BEPS 1.0 is fully implemented, the answer is we don't know the answer to that question. We do not know to what extent um, the BEPS 1.0 action items fully phased in would address these same issues. 
And I do think as we think about the landscape today, if we're going to move forward with the BEPS 2.0, I really do think it's incumbent upon the OECD and member countries to actually ask the question, okay, to the extent we think that BEPS 2.0 is necessary because BEPS 1.0 wasn't good enough, are some of the concepts and some of the action items that we suggested we needed in BEPS 1.0, are they no longer actually needed? So can we, for example, do away with some of the complexity that BEPS 1.0 brought in if we think BEPS 2.0 represents a better approach? Is it really necessary to have both of these things acting simultaneously? Um, and I don't know the answer to that question, but it is a fair question to be asking as we sit here today, both with respect to have we given BEPS 1.0 a chance? And again, to the extent we think even fully phased in, it's not gonna be sufficient or what we want, then are we going to have overlapping or inconsistent approaches that are going to subject companies potentially to meaningful double taxation in a way, or maybe not even double taxation, maybe just a kind of overly significant compliance burden in a way that we ought to be thinking about whether we can dial that back. And Pat, I would like to introduce Exhibit A in that trial, which is the new U.S. tax system, right, where we're <laughs> dealing with the complexity of, of our anti-hybrid rules, right? And then we have this guilty system, right, which is, you know, arguably a, a minimum tax regime. But then we've seen with how that layers in with the foreign tax credit, and you're right, We've spent a lot of time talking on the cross-border tax talks about the double taxation, that guilty is not really a, a minimum tax. But I think we've seen a lot of that as U.S. advisors, right, as, as, as U.S. folks, the, the inherent complexities that are associated with, with trying to, to do all of these things at, at the same time. And I, I do have, I share the same sentiment of like, do we really need to have all of these layers? It's, it's certainly good for all of those in the profession, right? Whether you're an advisor or whether you're working <laughs> for a taxpayer or whether you're an academic, there is no shortage of things for us to, to think about and, and talk about, but it, right. the, the complexity is, is really, is really deep. So let's turn then just to, to unpack because the BEPS 2.0, uh, arguably a, a, a misnomer. I know some of our colleagues don't believe that this is really about base erosion and profit shifting, but talk a little bit about Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. What, what are they? And I, I, I'm interested to know if you think BEPS 2.0 is a misnomer, but frankly, that horse has left the barn. We're calling this thing BEPS 2.0. But uh, tell us a little bit about Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Right, right, sure. So um, Pillar 1 really, to me, is very closely aligned to um, the original BEPS action item one around the digitalizing economy. And again, I talked about it a little bit earlier, this concept of companies who are able to achieve scale without mass. So you're able to sell your product or provide services to customers in a jurisdiction um, and uh, you can do that with no physical presence in the jurisdiction or with very little physical presence in the jurisdiction, but still realize very meaningful profit uh, from that jurisdiction. Um, pillar one of, of BEPS 2.0 is really an attempt to hone in on that phenomenon, that issue. Now, it's notable that's not a new phenomenon, right? We know that companies have, you know, for, for many, many years, been able to structure their affairs so that their taxable presence within a jurisdiction was quite low. You know, a limited risk distributor, some other similar type of uh, concept would reduce your 
physical presence within a jurisdiction to you know a quite low amount and therefore reduce your taxable profits within that jurisdiction to quite a low amount uh, but you would nevertheless be you know selling could be potentially selling meaningful product and making very significant uh, profits from sales into that jurisdiction so so that concept is not new it's fair to say that the OECD recognized that it is much more readily uh, accessible for customers, right? And that's a that's an intuitively easy thing, I think, for most people to grasp that, you know, you can go online and shop for things anywhere around the world. It's very much more straightforward to do. We have whole business models that have been built around this notion of you can access markets from anywhere. You can access products from anywhere. Um, and that is really what Pillar 1 is about. And the fundamental constructs around Pillar 1 relate to people talk about amount A and amount B. And I'll just touch on those very, very briefly. We can come back to them certainly if you want to. But, you know, amount A really is this notion of you're a globally engaged company. You earn meaningful residual profits. So beyond what economists would call a routine return on your assets, you have valuable intangibles and you are exploiting those intangibles through sales of product or delivery of services to customers around the world. And there's this sense that some portion of that intangible value is so inextricably tied to the market where you're selling product or providing services um, that it essentially belongs to that market and should be subject to tax in that market. Again, even though you may not have a meaningful physical presence in that market. So you can think about amount A as really saying, we're going to take some portion of this globally engaged company's residual profit and we're going to reallocate it to the, to the markets, to the countries where this company is doing business. And we're going to do that without regard to whether or not the company has any physical presence in that jurisdiction. It's like there's this thing that's of value and it's so closely tied to the market. It's some portion of the company's residual profit that's so closely tied to the market that that's where we're going to allocate it and it's going to be subject to tax there. Um, that's sort of what amount A is about at a high level. That is a fundamental change to how we think about taxing rights, right? Like, I mean, I think about going to law school and learning about permanent establishments and the arm's length principle. And this is a just fundamental change to how we tax. Now, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. Businesses a lot different than, you know, these old concepts that we've had in treaty for, you know, a century or at least decades. And so it, it really is a fundamental change to how we think about taxation around the globe. Yeah, it is. It's so three things on that, Doug. It's a fundamental change to the way treaties operate. Your point about permanent establishments it's a fundamental change to the way U.S. tax law has operated. There's a very well-known case for people who, who study this area closely, uh, Piedras Negras, which is about a radio station uh, in, in Mexico that was broadcasting into Texas and got basically all of its uh, advertising revenue uh, from, from the United States and from Texas. And the court made the decision that because essentially there was really no physical presence in the United States, the income was not subject to tax. Uh, by the United States. So it's a it's a f function of treaties. The treaties have never really operated this way. Again, they, they tie off of permanent establishment. U.S. law has always taken a very similar approach historically. Uh, and again, we touched on it earlier. That's 1.0 said, look at where your significant people functions are. That's where you should earn your IP related profit. So if you don't actually have significant people functions in a market jurisdiction, you're not subject to tax in that jurisdiction. Certainly not subject to tax on your residual profits in that jurisdiction. 
So yeah, this is a really fundamental departure from the way the international tax system has operated for a hundred plus years. Um, I don't think that's lost on the OECD, but it does point out the kind of sweeping ambition of this project to really to really recast that. And it does certainly give rise to a lot of questions, some of which we may get into around, okay, what are the fundamental principles that underlie how much profit gets allocated and under what circumstance? And that's certainly been one of the naughtiest problems the OECD has faced. Um, I'll just quickly say a very quick word on, on Amount B in, in Pillar 1. And, and Amount B really was an attempt to, I think, scratch an itch that a, U, a lot of U.S. companies and other globally engaged companies had been, had been um, you know, uh, had, had identified, let's say. And that was um, that, you know, when you do business in a jurisdiction through a, you know, limited risk distributor or some other form of a kind of routine presence where you have certain rather low value add functions in a jurisdiction. Um, oftentimes when you were audited in that jurisdiction, the jurisdiction would start off by saying, we want to grab some more of your profit. So we want to assert, you know, let's say a profit split. Uh, and grab some of your global profit, even though traditional transfer pricing principles would say, well, all I have in this jurisdiction is is a limited risk distributor and limited risk distributors functions. And so there was this tension where you could see countries trying to grab more of the residual profit um, and companies pushing back and saying, wait a minute, I thought based on the functions I do in the jurisdiction, I'm just subject to kind of a routine return. Amount B is really intended to say a Routine functions should get a routine return, and they should not get more than a routine return. And to try and short circuit some of the, you know, fights between uh, taxpayers and tax authorities in these jurisdictions, we should establish what it means to have a routine return and what that routine return is. That will sort of provide what the kind of, you know, the parameters are for the routine return. That's amount B. Amount A separately is how much of that residual is now going to get allocated to the market jurisdiction. So you can see the two pieces working together as let's figure out what's the appropriate return for the routine functions, and then let's figure out what's the appropriate amount of the residual that gets reallocated to the market jurisdiction to take into account, again, this concept of these intangibles that somehow belong to the market or are appropriately taxed to the market. All right, so pillar two then, is I, I think referred to as a a global minimum tax, and of course, you know, as a U.S. guy, I I think of guilty. Uh, but but talk a little bit about pillar two, and and then we'll dive into you know some more of the specifics from the recent OECD report. What is pillar two? Sure, um, and I think pillar two, to me at least, more starkly than pillar one, really does reflect. We touched on it a little bit with respect to Pillar 1, but Pillar 2 does really, to me, reflect a dissatisfaction with, with BEPS, uh, a dissatisfaction with the direction taken in BEPS. It, because it really what Pillar 2, as you say, you think about it as a minimum tax. So it's essentially some version of saying, look, I don't care what your people functions are. I don't care that you have hybridity or don't have hybridity in your structure. Um, I don't care that the reason that you have lower taxed earnings in a jurisdiction is because of an OECD compliant patent box, something that we haven't talked about, but certainly one of the things in BEPS 1.0 was this whole concept of what is an OECD compliant patent box. You know, Pillar 2 really is essentially, you know, the OECD, the international community saying, I don't care if you've done all of those things correctly. Uh, if you're not paying 
a minimum level of tax in your um, in your affiliated entities, uh, you're going to get topped up to whatever that minimum tax level is. Um, now that is at a very high level, kind of what pillar two is intended to mean. When when you when you kind of unpack just a slight level down from 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 pillar two, uh, from that high level on pillar two, what you see is the the basic guilty construct that you talked about, Doug, which is you've got a parent company at the top, you've got a bunch of foreign affiliates, meaning in a different jurisdiction from the headquarters of the parent company. And there's some computation that is done that looks at all of those foreign affiliates down below and imposes a top-up tax, and that tax is paid in the jurisdiction of the parent. That's essentially at a very, very high level, and I mean very high level, that is what Pillar 2 contemplates. Pillar 2 introduces this additional concept, though, which is, well, what if the parent company, the ultimate parent entity, to use the OECD's parlance, is in a jurisdiction that has decided they're not going to introduce this top-up minimum tax at the parent level? What do you do in that circumstance? And so one of the things that the OECD introduces in Pillar 2 is this concept of an undertaxed payment rule, which, again, the high-level way I think about that is, the, the, the kind of primary rule is you have the ultimate parent entity, it looks down and it imposes a top-up tax based on the laws of the pa ultimate parent jurisdiction. If the ultimate parent jurisdiction doesn't have that framework, then it is left to the affiliates amongst themselves to sort of apply this top-up minimum tax concept, but they have to do it laterally. They have to do it by looking at payments between each other, which is enormously complicated to do, as we see in the Pillar 2 document, which actually sets out the framework for how, how the OECD envisions this thing would work. The OECD actually acknowledges in the, in the document what they call the undertax payment rule. Essentially, they say, wow, this is really complicated. But not to worry, we think most countries will actually introduce the primary rule, which they call the income inclusion rule, which is you have a top co in a jurisdiction and it imposes the minimum tax sort of on a, on a you know, kind of a top-down basis where you look down from the top and you, and you, and you top everybody up. Um, and so we don't think this idea of having to apply these minimum tax concepts laterally is going to really be necessary. We have to write it because if, if a country doesn't do the top-up minimum tax from the top, then we need something. But we don't actually think people are going to do it. I'm not frankly so sure I'm convinced of that. And so I think the complexity that the undertax payment rule um, will bring into the system is something that, that I think companies and countries are going to have to think seriously about if this thing moves forward, uh, because I, I don't think you can count on the fact that all countries will introduce the income inclusion rule, the primary rule. And if you actually have to get into the level of saying, how do I apply minimum tax concepts on a kind of lateral basis on payments between affiliates, um, it is really, truly mind-numbingly complicated. And I, I think, you know, one, you know, one almost despairs of actually trying to apply it in a real fact pattern with lots of affiliates. You can easily do it if you've only got two companies in a, in a, in a uh, you know, in a multinational group, but nobody has just two legal entities. They've got hundreds of legal entities and trying to apply these concepts in that, uh, you know, in, in a meaningful way across hundreds of legal entities with literally hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of of, of payments between affiliates, I think is just enormous. It, it understates it to say it's enormously complicated. I, I think as U.S. tax professionals, we probably have more of a insight into the complexity of these types of rules. Obviously, we don't have the the undertax payment rule, but 
just even the complexities of our guilty regime, which is not by country, and we'll get into that. It's just th th this is going to be very difficult to to administer. So let's turn to the most recent OECD report that came out on October 12, 2020. I think we were all of us in the international tax community anxiously awaiting this report. We'll talk a little bit about timing to, to wrap things up, but wanted to spend a little time both on pillar one and pillar two on what the OECD is actually suggesting and, and recommending. And because I, I think it was originally the intention that that some of this or maybe all of this would become law before the end of the year. I think that thankfully the, the brakes have at least been tapped a little bit on this, partially because of the pandemic and trying to get all this stuff done virtually, which we know this is a perfect example of how challenging that is. Um, but at least the brakes have, have been tapped, I feel like, a little bit. But Tell us a little bit, what are some of the highlights in the report? Let's start with, with pillar one, um, highlights or lowlights, yeah. I guess, depending on your perspective uh, with respect to, to, to pillar one and how that might be administered. Sure. So I think um, the well, with respect to both pillar one and pillar two, but focusing on pillar one first, the OECD is quite upfront in saying these are not consensus documents, the documents that the OECD put out. So these do not reflect an agreement amongst the members of what the OECD calls the inclusive framework, which is made up of the OECD countries plus about 100 other countries. Um, so right up front, the OECD acknowledges that, that, look, we, we don't have agreement on this. And if you think about the, the construct of what Pillar 1 is and what Pillar 1 is trying to do, again, you know, Pillar one creates winners and losers. You have countries that uh, market jurisdictions that are going to get more taxing rights uh, with respect to valuable property or valuable services provided to customers in their, in their jurisdiction. So you have countries that get more tax revenue and you have countries that give up tax revenue. And obviously you have a lot of countries who are going to get more revenue from some companies and lose revenue from other companies. So there's a mix of all of that in there. But clearly, pillar one, you know, again, just the way we've described it, it's a reallocation exercise uh, between jurisdictions. And given that it's a reallocation exercise, I don't want to, you know, it oversimplifies it probably to call it a zero sum game. Uh, but it is primarily about allocating taxing rights between jurisdictions. So you're going to have some jurisdictions get more and some jurisdictions get less. Um, and that is really the fundamental premise of it. And so at some level, it's not hard. To understand why uh, you know the OEC is right up front with, hey, we don't have agreement on this yet. It's going to be hard to get agreement on this, um, and I think that's I think that is very true. Um, when you think about kind of what are the fundamental concepts that are built into the Pillar One document that we just saw, I think the things that stand out to me are one, this is not limited to just digital business models, not limited to just high tech companies or technology companies. That is hugely important. It's hugely important to the United States uh, because the United States has said from the very beginning of this project, and by the way, this was true under the Obama administration and true under the Trump administration, that the United States will not accept what we have called ring fencing the digital economy. Um, so the idea that tech companies, obviously most of the most valuable tech companies as we sit here today are US headquartered companies. So the United States has just not been prepared to accept this notion of we're gonna have one set of tax rules that applies for 99% of the companies in the world, and we're gonna have another set of tax rules that apply only to big US technology companies, and will effectively take taxing you know, jurisdictions from the US with respect to those companies and allocate it to other countries. 
so what you see in pillar one is you see, yes, digital companies are in scope. That was always going to be the case. Uh, but there's also this concept of bringing um, what the OECD refers to as consumer facing businesses in scope. So this is, again, I, we said you know, earlier on this on this in this discussion, Doug, that um, this concept of scale without mass is not necessarily new. Right. There's been the ability to earn very high margins from selling a product or providing a service cross border while having a very, very small or maybe even no presence uh, in a jurisdiction. And so a lot of what Pillar 1 talks about in, in the, the Pillar 1 document talks about right up front is what are the other kinds of businesses that should be in scope beyond just digital? And the concept here that, that, um, that the OECD outlines is this concept of consumer-facing businesses. So this is companies that are selling a, pro a product or providing a service that is going to end users, consumers. It doesn't necessarily mean the company is selling directly to consumers. So they can be selling through an intermediary, which can be related or unrelated. Um, but the idea is you, you have a product, that product is intended for use by consumers, end users. Um, and that product, again, consistent with what we've said all with respect to all aspects of Pillar 1, that product is intended, or excuse me, not is intended, that product has associated with it, or that product or that service has associated with it, valuable and tangible. So there's valuable residual profits associated with that. And therefore, we're going to reallocate some of the tax amounts. Um, I think a lot of the complexity that comes in in amount A is defining what is and what is not a business that's in scope. And I think importantly, is also as part of amount A, there is this whole concept that the OECD talks about in the document of segmentation. So do we look at a company in toto? Do we look at a company by line of business? Do we look on a global basis at what your residual profits are? Do we look at your residual profits segmented by market? A lot of these concepts the OECD has a lot of discussion about, and I will tip my hat to the OECD, there's a lot of very thoughtful uh, discussion in these documents or in these pages about how to think through these things. So the OECD has done, frankly, you know, a heck of a lot of work in putting together these concepts and these framework uh, and, and this framework for how this is supposed to how this is supposed to operate. But you can also see the fault lines. It's very clear that you see the fault lines in the document between, you know, is it appropriate to segment by geography? Is it appropriate to segment by business line? Under what circumstances? What kinds of business are in scope? What kinds of business are not are not in scope? There's a great example in the document or uh, set of discussions in the document around pharmaceutical companies. Uh, which are not treated the same in all jurisdictions, right? We know that some, some very valuable pharmaceutical products are by prescription in some jurisdiction, but they're over the counter in other jurisdictions. So the nature of regulation in these jurisdictions can be very different, and that can maybe drive a difference in the way people think about them within these countries. So there's a lot here, a lot of grist through the mill in terms of a lot of issues to think about. But again, we talked about a lot about complexity. A lot of this complexity comes from trying to overlay this revolutionary concept, as we talked about before, on a lot of disparate business models, a lot of diff, uh, disparate uh, country uh, fact profiles, and trying to figure out how to kind of make that work. So at least, you know, at a high level, Doug, those are some of the things that kind of jump out at me as I went through the Pillar 1 document. We, we could almost, Pat, do a separate podcast on each of these respective pillars because there's, you're right, there's so much to unpack there. But I think that's a, it's a great, great synopsis. 
let's let's move to to, to pillar two then, because I know that is also something that has been a, of a lot of interest. This idea of a minimum tax and. What was amazing to me, and, and this was similar in the pillar one, but just the amount of thought that was put into how a minimum tax might be structured and, and particularly focused on a bi-country minimum tax that is different than guilty, which allows us to, for, for the US multinationals to really group all of those CFCs together. So tell us a little bit about about pillar two, and you had already mentioned the income inclusion rule and the secondary rule, but what are some of the the, the highlights or, or lowlights with respect to, to pillar two? Yeah, so so in, in thinking about pillar two, and I think the, the comparison of pillar two and guilty in this construct is really interesting. And again, I won't talk about income inclusion rule and our tax payment rule, um, but uh, because we've already touched on those, but guilty, and you touched on this, Doug, guilty envisions all countries taken together, averaged together. You know, we, we used to call it, um, as it was as it was coming together, uh, as a one CFC rule, a one CFC minimum tax. You treat all CFCs as one, you blend all of your income, you blend all your foreign taxes together, you determine whether or not you owe a top-up tax. Um, that's kind of fundamental to guilty. The OECD and the inclusive framework has said, that's not the approach we intend to take. Um, they, they call it jurisdictional blending. I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, because what it really says is look at each jurisdiction separately uh, and you compute whether or not, you know, you compute what your income was in that jurisdiction, you compute what your tax was in that jurisdiction, and whether, if you owe a top-up amount, you pay that top-up amount. That's kind of a fundamental difference between guilty at an overall level, uh, so-called global blending as the OECD refers to it, uh, and and the and the um, and the construct for pillar two, which imagines this jurisdiction or, or conceives of it as this jurisdictional blending. But something else that's pretty fundamental to the way guilty operates is guilty just has an annual snapshot. You look at your foreign earnings, you look at your foreign taxes, and you ask whether or not you've paid sufficient tax. If you have, you move on to the next year. If you haven't, you pay a top up tax. Uh, but there is no mechanism within guilty to carry forward or carry back losses. Uh, at the local level or to carry forward or carry back foreign tax credits. That is unique uh, to the guilty basket uh, within the US system. So every other foreign tax credit basket has this concept of carry over and carry back. Guilty does not. That was really part of, if you will, kind of the benefit of the bargain was, yeah, you get to put everything in together, but you're not gonna get to carry over or carry back. You just get a single, simple uh, snapshot, single year look, and that's all you get. Uh, because the OECD has said, we're gonna do this jurisdictional blending approach where we're gonna look at each jurisdiction separately, I think they have recognized, as I think you would have to, if you're gonna look at each jurisdiction separately, that timing differences become much more important in that framework. So you really do have to ask the question, okay, maybe you didn't pay tax in, your, in this particular jurisdiction in this particular year, but maybe that's because you lost money for the prior three years. And because you lost money for the prior three years, You've got a big NOL carry forward. So yeah, you're not actually paying cash tax in the jurisdiction this year, but that's not because you've got low taxed income. It's because on a multi-year period, you've got little to no income. You lose that if you only look within a single year. So you have to have this concept of a multi-year uh, look. And that gives rise to an enormous amount of complexity in its own right. So again, we talked about how complicated the undertax payment rule is because of this need to look laterally uh, across, you know, across affiliates. The income inclusion regime, again, the top-down regime, 
itself is enormously complicated because there is this notion of I'm going to look at each country separately. And because I'm going to look at each country separately, I'm going to have to have concepts of carryovers and carrybacks so I can smooth out these timing differences. For all of the struggles that U.S. companies have had in dealing with guilty and trying to make kind of sense of the way guilty operates in some fact patterns, one thing that, that guilty does not subject companies to is the need to look over a multi-year, um, you know, a multi-year period in order to figure out what your effective tax rate is and whether or not you're subject to guilty. Again, for guilty, it's sort of the benefit of the bargain. Everything goes in together, but you only look at one year. The OECD says, no, we're going to look at each jurisdiction separately, but you're going to look over multiple years to try and smooth out these timing differences. And again, there is a lot of complexity in the Pillar 2 document that comes out from that multi-year look. I, I, I again tip my hat to the OECD. I think the technical analysis they've done here is really very good, but you can't get past the complexity of this and actually imagining you know, 137 countries or whatever the number is within the inclusive framework trying to reflect this in national legislation. It's heroic. That's being charitable. It's heroic to imagine even a handful of countries being able to actually implement this in national legislation, let alone then apply it um, in, uh, you know, in any meaningful way. I just, it seems like that's such a, a it's, well, it's, a, it's heroic, I guess. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I'll, I I concur. So let's let's kind of conclude here with with timing because it, it's a good reminder, right? We get so focused on what the OECD reports say, and I I have to remind myself, wait a minute, this this isn't actually law, right? Like we need each respective jurisdiction, each respective of the 137 that have signed on to this to actually implement these rules themselves um, based on their own domestic you know, legislation or regulations, whatever the, the situation might be. And we've seen already from BEPS 1.0, some, some countries have just literally cut and pasted I, actually, I don't think that's the right appropriate use of literal. The companies would have just cut and pasted from the OECD report. And then other countries have really, I mean, the U.S. is a great example of kind of taking it to the next level and have used those those fundamental principles. So what is the timing of this? When do you anticipate some countries actually starting to, to implement these rules? Uh, my big concern is that we're just going to have a patchwork of different rules between the you know under tax rules or the income inclusion rules and with different standards in each of the respective jurisdictions that will make things very very challenging but talk a little bit about the the timing and really what you see as the future of BEPS 2.0 as it actually gets implemented yeah so there's a there's a short answer and a slightly longer answer to that the short answer is the OECD has said um, the timeline for this is mid 2021. Um, and, you know, as you already mentioned, Doug, you know, the original timeline had been, you know, the end of this year. In fact, the G20 meeting that just passed was supposed to be the grand unveiling of the agreed product for both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. And that didn't happen. The timeline has been shifted forward to mid-2021. And by the way, we've seen, you know, for example, the European Union say, hey, mid-2021 or bust, you guys have to reach agreement or we're going to move ahead with our own version of these things. We cannot wait any longer uh, for agreement or consensus amongst the international community uh, at the OECD. Uh, so, you know, that, that's the short answer to the question is they've talked about mid-2021. I think the longer answer to the question is, I don't believe that the project in its current 
um, you know, incarnation with the level of complexity uh, in, with respect to both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, and frankly, the differences between countries with respect to Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 can move forward uh, and be agreed. And what that says is that the OECD has to figure out a way, a path forward that allows this to move, uh, to, to advance, but to do so in a way that allows countries and companies to see how it might operate, what the effects are, to iterate. Um, all of this is, is not something that is capable of being done in a very compressed period of time. And I think the OECD, again, because they have felt, you know, the need to act quickly um, around, uh, around moving these concepts forward, um, has really put a lot of time pressure on getting to an agreement. But if you can't get to an agreement that, that countries are prepared to sign on to, then you're left with, well, well what happens next? Or what, what, what are we facing into? So I think as we sit here today, the project is at a bit of a crossroads. I think one of two things is, there are probably multiple other possibilities, but one of two things strike me as, you know, more likely to, to be the path forward. One is that the OECD fashions a way to move this thing forward in a way that is somewhat more restricted, at least initially, you know, as a proof of concept or, you know, beta testing or something like that, where you have a, uh, a less ambitious scope for pillar one, a less ambitious scope for pillar two, less ambitious could mean, you know, fewer countries perhaps involved, um, kind of road testing these concepts in ways that are, are um, are, are able to kind of provide for an opportunity for feedback, both from companies and countries to see how they operate. Um, that's one path, and it's a path that potentially allows the OECD project to move forward, to advance, to unfold over time. Um, and I think from the standpoint of companies and the international community, that is a path to a multilateral uh, framework. And I think, you know, there's a lot of reason to, to hope and want that outcome to happen. That, that we can reach a, a good multilateral solution here. But I think in order to get there, it's not going to suffice to simply have these documents in their current form served up to countries and say, now go turn them into your law. As I just don't think there's a, I, there's not a ready path, at least as we sit here today, where I see that that happens. Um, so, but that's kind of one path. I think the other path is the OECD has done a lot of work and a lot of really good technical work on this stuff and you end up with something that isn't able to achieve consensus, but nevertheless um, represents kind of the international community's best effort at what these new concepts and principles should look like and how they should be applied. And that, Doug, it seems to me, leads to kind of the patchwork solution that you talked about, which is countries read these documents, they pull out of them the things that they like, they put them into their national legislation, and they say, they, well, this is consistent with the OECD's principles, We've just taken the pieces of it that make the most sense for us. There's a few we've left behind, but ultimately, you know, we've got we've picked up most of the international framework with respect to whether it's minimum taxes or digital taxation or whatever. Again, that's pillar one or pillar two. So we've picked up most of that stuff, but we've implemented it in our own way. Um, that's kind of the patchwork approach. Um, I think either one of those approaches are possible. I think if the patchwork approach proceeds, to me, that sounds an awful lot like kind of countries doing their own thing, but essentially asserting that they, have the, that they have the OECD's blessing or endorsement for doing it. I don't think that's necessarily a great answer for, for companies because now you've got, again, you use the word patchwork, you've got a lot of different approaches to this reflected in a lot of different jurisdictions in somewhat different ways. 
that's certainly a path for a lot of, you know, multiple taxation, a lot of administrative complexity and burden. Um, and there's a lot to be concerned about on that path. Um, but that is a path that I think we would we would be more likely to be headed towards probably unless the OECD is able to figure out a way to kind of narrow the scope of the, of the ambitions in the near term to figure out a way to road test this and let people then see what it looks like and get themselves on board. Is that where it's headed? I don't know, but those strike me as two plausible outcomes as we see it here today, and it will unfold over the next six to 12 months. That seems very clear. I can't, again, one doesn't ever want to predict the future given the year we've just been going through, uh, but the notion of getting to mid-2021 and kicking the can down the road for yet a few more months, I just frankly can't see it happening. Doesn't mean it can't happen, but it just, I, as we sit here today, I cannot see it happening. Uh, and so that means the next six to 12 months are going to be really fascinating uh, to watch all this unfold. Well, I think it's really important for, for our listeners to make sure that they continue to stay engaged in, in, in the process. And as this evolves and develop, we'll certainly continue to talk about it here on the Cross-Border Tax Talks. And I'm already, Pat, looking forward to your fifth return to the Cross-Border Tax Talk. So thank you very much for coming today. Good to be with you, Doug. Thanks so much. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Pat Brown, PwC's International Tax Policy Leader, for joining me on this episode. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. 